You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So now I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Cameron Brock. Um, the reason why I was asked to be up here is because I studied uh, church history and theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary up in Massachusetts. And I studied that for four years. My concentration was on patristics, which is just a fancy word for saying the early church. So I studied the first six centuries of church history, and I found my comfort zone in North African Christianity with a uh, early church theologian by the name of Tertullian. And I really fell in love with his writings, his theology, and the way that he talked about the Trinity. And so I'll actually be back here on February 20th talking about the doctrine of the Trinity again. Um, but my wife and I, we moved down here, I guess it was a year and a half ago. Uh, we became members of Rocky Creek, and God brought us down here because uh, of family. And so uh, my wife, you actually probably know her, she uh, works at the front desk uh, most days during the week. And uh, probably the most exciting thing I can tell you about my life currently at the moment is that we're expecting a, our first child in July, so I'm super excited um, by that. Thank you, thank you. So, super excited about that. But that's enough about myself. Let's talk about more important things and uh, more fun things, I think, personally, theology. And so last week, Travis, he did his lecture on uh, natural theology and natural revelation, and that was how God reveals himself to us and his attributes in creation. So today what we're going to be focusing on is another aspect of theological epistemology, and don't get worried by that long word, epistemology. We're going to explain and talk about that here for a second. But in particular, we're going to be dealing with special revelation, which is God's unique, personal speaking and revealing of who He is. Before we can really even ever do that, let's see if my slides work. Haha, they do. We really have to talk about the task of how is it even possible to really talk about God, to think about God. What is really the grounding for our knowledge of God? Theology is really possible because of two things, because God speaks to us and God speaks for us. And I want to unpack those two things for one second here. The fact that God speaks to us, the fact that God, who is so much greater and so much beyond our comprehension speak to us means that he is a God who desires to be known and a God who has a desire to, be, to have a relationship with us. In the realm of, I guess, theological reflection, a lot of times there's a distinction that theologians will make. They'll make a distinction between objects in the world around us and make a distinction with subjects. What do they mean by objects? Well, objects in the world are those things that we can simply look at and we can have a knowledge of. Take, for example, this pen. This pen is an object. I can look at it and I can determine the color of the pen, I can determine the shape of the pen, I can determine a number of things about the pen, and the pen can't do anything to keep me from learning about that pen. It's simply, strictly speaking, an object. We as human beings, we are both objects and subjects. There are things that you can learn about me at looking at me, things like my hair color, maybe my body shape, all these different things you can learn about me as an object, but there are some things that you can't know about me unless I communicate that to you. You wouldn't have known that I came from Boston and Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary unless I communicated that 
to you. And so I'm not just a pure object, I'm also a subject as well. But when we think about God and we think about who He is, He's not like us. He's not an object and a subject. He's simply pure subject. He's so beyond the created world and He's so beyond who we think of Him that any form of knowledge of God by necessity has to flow from God's self-revelation. It has to flow from Him being pure subject. It is the God who speaks to us. And how does He communicate to us? He communicates us via two primary mediums, that of Scripture, the written word, which is what we're primarily going to be focusing on and talking about today. But He also speaks to us by His incarnation, that is the incarnation of His Son, the Logos, which, you, which Travis defined last week as word reason. It's the word that John uses in 1 John when he says, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word for word is Logos. That's what's being used there. It's this word that is communicated, and this word is communicated to us, comes down, and he dwells among us in the incarnation. Paul refers to Christ as the image of the invisible God, and it is through that incarnation that we learn who God is. Those are the two primary ways that God speaks to us. But God's communication is not enough that it simply is speaking to us. What makes the revelation of God and that speaking to us significant is because God speaks for us. What that means is that in the written word, we don't just simply have chaotic revelations about God. Scripture is organized into a meta-narrative, this grand story of redemption that begins with creation and it ends with the consummation in Revelation. This grand story focuses and goes to a major vocal point, and that is that it's pointing us to the gospel, to the Messiah that came in the incarnation. One of the things I, I topics I love to talk about, so I probably talk too much about it to anybody who will listen to me, is Messiah and the Pentateuch. I love talking about the images of Christ in the Old Testament and how these different prophecies and these different messianic visions lead to this thread that find its culmination and climax in the person Christ. That is what it means that God communicates and speaks for us. He speaks to us in this gospel, the purpose of his revelation. I want to read a quote by Karl Barth, who was a German theologian in the 20th century, and he put it this way. Theology would forfeit its object if, if it should cease to recount the mighty works of God, if it should transfer its interest instead to the examination of a material God or merely godly matters. Regardless of what the gods of the other theologies may do, the God of the gospel rejects any connection with a theology that has become paralyzed and static. Evangelical theology can only exist and remain in vigorous motion when its eyes are fixed on the God of the gospel. I think Karl Barth got it. He got what it meant that God communicates himself for us. And so that's the two things I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we're going through, as we're going through some pretty difficult subjects here. And we're going to be looking at how different theologians have viewed and approached Scripture and how they formulated a doctrine of Scripture. And at the end, I'm going to try to offer us some helpful guidelines and maybe some thoughts and reflections about how we ourselves should formulate or at least have a proper understanding of a doctrine of scripture within our theological frameworks. 
So with that, let's go ahead and talk about two primary subjects here we're going to focus on, doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy. And I should have those two um, defined on the top of the handout for you all. So if there's ever a time where you're like, I'm not sure what that word is, those two words in particular should be defined for you at the offset on the top of the handout. What I want to focus on first is the biblical foundation for inspiration, because when you go into church history, unlike other doctrines, there really is no major historical development per se of inspiration. The church has always assumed an inspiration of the biblical text, and that is the fact that God, when, he, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. That is a divinely inspired text, and there's a couple of key passages that kind of help and, and speak of this self-authentication of the written word. First one is 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul put it this way, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The key phrase there is that it's breathed by God. The breath of God in Scripture, when you look at the different instances where God breathes, both in the creation of man as well as in the apostles in John 20, the breath of God is a symbol of his authority, of a passing of his authority onto those. And so when you think about what it means to create in the image of God, there's some aspect of us being created in the image of God, that we're his image here on earth, that God gave us authority to do something to produce, to multiply, fill the earth, and to subdue it. There's some aspect that we were actually created and a purpose that we were created for. In the same way, the apostles, when, God, when Christ appears before them in the upper room, he breathes the Holy Spirit into them. And it's shortly thereafter that the Pentecost event and all of church history begins from there on. This idea of the breath of God bears witness to it, the inspiration of the text. Peter puts it another way, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this case, Peter's going back to the Old Testament, he's talking about the prophets. And he's going, you know, what they prophesied, what they said, wasn't just any other words, it wasn't their own human interpretation. It was something that God inspired them, and he carried them along in the Holy Spirit. Again, we have the Scripture speaking of its inspiration. Hebrews 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living. It's active. It reflects the attributes and qualities of its creator. Scripture is inspired and it speaks of its own inspiration. And the witness of church history has shown the fact that for the vast majority of church history, inspiration of the text has been an assumption. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some room for discussion. What do we mean when we say a text is divinely inspired? Is it the authors that are inspired? Is it the text that's inspired? What does this exactly mean to be inspired? And so there are various theologians who have looked at this idea of inspiration, and in particular, the mode of revelation. How does God communicate his revelation to his authors? How is that transcribed and transmitted 
onto the text that we read before us. So we're going to look in particular at three major approaches. The first of, a set of approaches I want to take a look at is what I would categorize as the word-for-word -word approaches. And there's two that would fit in line within this category. The first is the dictation approach, which I will say is not a very popular one. There are some scholars, such as John Rice, who are perfectly okay with having their approaches to inspiration being categorized under this idea of dictation. But for the most part, theologians don't really like that because they recognize something about it, and we're going to talk into that. But the dictation approach is that God dictates word for word to the author what is to be written. It's kind of like this picture here that I have of Matthew and the angel whispering in his ear, telling him word for word what to put within the text. There's another approach called the verbal approach, and this is one that was popularized, uh, I think, expressed by um, John Calvin. J.I. Packer and Albert Moeller would be within this camp of viewing and understanding the mode of inspiration as a verbal approach. And this one in particular, what it does is it doesn't like the fact, this idea of somehow God dictating word for word the text, because it seems to not recognize some of the human aspects of the text, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So instead, what they've done is they've said, okay, it's not so much that God is whispering in their ear word for word or dictating it, but the Holy Spirit comes along and guides their thoughts to dictate word for word what the author writes down. Now, you'll notice this is very similar to the dictation approach, and it's probably one of the reasons that if you were to read J.I. Packer's explanation of it, that he spends a large amount of time defending why it's not a dictation approach. But nevertheless, there is this slight nuance here. And so I have a quote from his understanding. He states, inspiration is to be defined as a supernatural providential influence of God's Holy Spirit upon human authors, which caused them to write what he wished to be written for the communication of revealed truth to others, which involved human writers as a means to an end, but which actually terminated not on them, but on what they wrote. The key phrase I want to point out here is this idea of termination. That is that they find their end in something here. Because I want to point out here, the termination is not on the authors. Inspiration doesn't occur in the authors. It occurs in the text. The authors, in essence, become simply an instrument, almost like a musician playing an instrument in which inspiration is passed on to the text. That's the key aspect of this approach to Scripture. And there is some biblical language to this, and I think this is really important to recognize here. There are many times in Scripture where you have things such as divine speaking, divine speech that occurs on here. I only have one example, but there's plenty of examples of this within Scripture. You have the example of the word of the Lord came to me, and if you ever want to see this repeated over and over and over again, Ezekiel 12 have, has this same recurrence happening five times in it. But all the prophets tend to use this language, this idea of the fact that their words are not simply something that they're creating, but it's something that is being given to them. And that's important. But I think that when we look at Scripture, and this is something important to opponents of the word-for-word -word approaches, when they look at Scripture, they go, is this really how Scripture speaks of its own inspiration? Are the authors themselves simply just instruments of inspiration that are occurring. So we come to our next set of approaches, the dynamic approaches, 
And ultimately what the dynamic approaches are seeking to do is they're trying to give weight or recognize the human aspects in scripture. The fact that there were human beings who wrote down the text that we have before us. One of the main aspects of this is the dynamic approach and it emphasizes the combination of human and divine elements in the process of inspiration. It seeks to recognize the didactic witness of scripture and the phenomena of scripture. So let's unpack that for one second here. What do we mean by the didactic witness and what do we mean by the phenomena of scripture? The didactic witness is what we would refer to as that divine speech aspect. The fact that scripture teaches us about itself. It speaks to its own authenticity and it speaks to its own inspiration. It's that didactic witness. Didactic simply meaning teaching. But there's some aspect to it. It's not just simply the witness of scripture, but rather it's also the phenomena of scripture. And phenomena is just a fancy word for the experience. Is it fair enough to say that all the biblical authors and all their experience of inspiration, that they're all experiencing divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit or of God, however you want to put it, in the exact same way? I have one example, or two examples actually up here I want to talk about. The first one is descriptive distance. If you were to turn to Ezekiel 1 or Revelation 4, you'll notice this. They're both throne room encounters. Ezekiel is standing in the heavenlies, and he has this encounter with God in the throne room of heaven. And he starts to describe that vision. And what's very apparent by his description of that vision is whenever he comes to something like a throne, he can't simply say, it is a throne. He has to say, it's like a throne, or it's in the appearance of such. You see, Ezekiel is so uncomfortable with putting what he's observing, that is this divine encounter, something that is beyond what we have experienced here on earth, that he's unwilling to put it into exact language. He has to front it, in essence, put a parenthesis of likeness and appearance of. John does the same exact thing in Revelation 4 when he sees the throne room. He sees something like a throne. He sees something like a sea of glass. There's this descriptive distance between the author and what he's experiencing, which is purely divine, and yet, how do we put this into human words? To give you somewhat of a historical, um, I guess somewhat of an um, example, when, when the Spaniards first came to America, and they were traveling around, and they were discovering different things, they came across the Grand Canyon. And of course, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or seen pictures of it, you know it's massive. I mean, it's huge. And then when they came back to Spain, it's kind of somewhat comical to read some of their letters or some of the conversations that they have because they go back home and they try to describe the Grand Canyon to those around them. And they were like, well, it's big. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's kind of like this pit here. No, 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 you don't understand. It's really, really big. They struggled to put into words the magnificence of what they had beheld. It's not that what they had beheld wasn't real. It wasn't that it wasn't accurate, but it was just so magnificent they couldn't quite put it into words. The other aspect, and something I want to point out in terms of this multiplicity of phenomena, is 1 Corinthians 7.25 with Paul, and he writes this, Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. 
Now, I don't want this to be taken as Paul saying he's not inspired. Paul is inspired. He repeatedly throughout his, past, throughout his letters bears witness to his inspiration and his authority as an apostle. But I want to point out here that there's something different in the experience of inspiration here. Paul has no direct command. He recognizes that what he's speaking to is not something that he's heard an audible voice or even has per se had a movement. He recognizes that Christ hasn't come to him in a vision and said, this is what you should do. But he's also read his Bible. If you actually look at what he's talking about here in Corinthians and some of the things that he gives his audience and some of the commands he gives, they're in line with what the Old Testament talks about in terms of the holiness codes. He's not doing anything that is exclusively unique to him. He's speaking within a line of tradition. But is it fair to call the phenomena that Paul is experiencing of inspiration a dictation or a verbal approach? Maybe not. This is where the debate of theologians comes in. This is where theology can sometimes get complicated because we have to make sense of this biblical language. We have to be able to recognize that sometimes the Bible speaks in ways that we aren't familiar with, and we have to be willing to wrestle with that. In essence, we have to be willing to humble ourselves and to recognize that there is some aspect of Scripture that we may never fully understand. The last approach in terms of the dynamic approach, I want to just briefly touch on. I'm not going to go into excruciating detail here because we'll talk some about what Peter N's um, arguments are in the question of inerrancy. But what I do want to bring up here is that in recent times, Peter N's, he was a Old Testament scholar up in, um, oh man, Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Pennsylvania. And he made, a, 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 I guess, a lot of shockwaves. <laughs> in terms of the evangelical world with his book, Inspiration and Incarnation, because as an Old Testament scholar, he's very familiar with the world in the context of the Old Testament. That is the ancient Near Eastern context, and we're gonna unpack that when we get to inerrancy a little bit more. And so he recognizes that there are similarities with what's written in the Bible, with what some of the people around the Israelites are writing. And he looks at that and he goes, you know, maybe the Bible's not 100% unique. And maybe speaking about some of these things in regards to history and science, maybe it's not inerrant either. Maybe we're viewing this all wrong. And so his proposition, his critique, is what is called an incarnational approach. And what he attempts to do is he wants to recognize a parallel between the incarnation of Jesus and Scripture. It is the divine written word which manifested, or word manifested in the humanness of the author. He has a quote here, and I'm going to point out something in particular about this quote that I think is important, but he writes this, If even God expresses himself in the Bible through particular human circumstances, we must be very ready to see the necessarily culturally limited nature of our own theological expressions today. I simply mean that all of our theologizing, because we are human beings living in particular historical and cultural moments, will have a temporary and provisional, even fallen, dimension to it. Now I want to point out something really important here about his critique. His critique is not about a text. His, his critique is about how we sometimes interpret a text. He's going back to our interpretation of passages. And I, I do agree with him on some level. I think his critique is somewhat valid in that I think sometimes as evangelicals we forget the fact that the text may be inspired but our inspiration of it is not. And that's something that Peter Enns is pointing out there. 
he's recognizing that sometimes how we engage with scripture and how we interpret it may not be the correct way to interpret a passage. He has a problem not per se with inerrancy and inspiration as much as how it's sometimes wielded as a tool against people. And I think we can all recognize in ourselves a tendency sometimes to do that. Travis used the phrase proof texting. It's where you take a passage and you take it out of its context, but you use it to argue a certain perspective. We do that all the time. So I think Peter Enns is correct on that, but I do want to point out something else about his incarnational approach. This parallel that he's trying to connect, and I somewhat resonate with him wanting to go back to Christ. I think our theology ought to point us to Christ. But the parallel breaks down really quickly when you start to think about this incarnational approach. Christ, though he is fully divine and fully human, his human nature is not sinful nature. It's not, he was not sinful. Hebrews, uh, I believe it's 4.15, if I'm remembering correctly, talks about the sinlessness of Christ. And yet, what Peter Enns is proposing here is a text that is inspired, and it's incarnational. It's clothed in humanity in the sense of human authorship, but he wants to sit there and say it's, it's fallible, it's errant. The parallel breaks down between Christ and Scripture. They're not one and the same. If you want to do it as an analogy, I would be willing to do that, but he himself is unwilling to do that, according to his own text. So that's something to keep in mind here, and we're going to come back to some of these questions about context and culture when we get into the question and debate over inerrancy. Now let's turn to the third and final one, and I'm not going to spend a, a, a long time on this one because this should be somewhat obvious once we get into it. But there's a, a certain enlightened approach to Scripture. And what this is is um, really following a, a time period, and we're going to get into this in a second here with inerrancy, so bear with me. Um, but following the Enlightenment, which was a, um, a philosophical and a scientific movement in the 17th and 18th centuries, people started to review and evaluate Christianity, not through the lens of, of theology, but really through the lens of religious studies, and that Christianity is just another world religion. And how, do, how does our world religion, Christianity, compare to other world religions? And so you have this comparative religions aspect and approach to Christianity. And there's a lot of scholars who jump into the conversation about inspiration from outside of Christianity. And that's really where this approach is coming from. The enlightened approaches, and in particular the intuition and illumination approaches, let's talk about the intuition first. Inspiration is the function of a high gift, such as artistic abilities. In essence, the biblical authors were religious geniuses. See, for, for those who have the intuition approach, in essence, what the authors become is they just become extremely fine-tuned and intelligent religious figures. No different than any other religious figure of the world. I think at the face value, we ought to see an immediate problem here. And that's the fact that there really is no real inspiration of a text. It's a human text, period. That's it. Now, the illumination approach attempts to try to somewhat bridge the gap here in that it recognizes the role of the Holy Spirit in inspiring biblical authors, but only in a heightening sense of their natural powers. 
A famous proponent of this, Auguste Sabatier, wrote this, Religious inspiration is simply the organic penetration of man by God, but I repeat, by an interior and indwelling God, and in such wise that when that penetration is complete, the man finds himself to be really and fully himself more than ever. The key there is the human finds himself fully and complete. Because what he's espousing here is that through some sort of inspiration, through this experience of divinity, that we're made more complete and full, and that's what inspiration of a text really is. It's the apostles and the prophets who just have a unique experience with God, which heightens their ability. But nevertheless, it's still a human text. We still run, run into the same problem. Now at this point, you're probably going, okay, Cameron, I've been tracking with you. Which one of these should I believe? Which one of these fall within the spectrum of evangelicalism? <laughs> he said the illumination approach. Um, wrong answer. Anyway, I'm going to fully expound on this a little bit more later on, but I do think that when it comes to the doctrine of inspiration, while these different theologians are certainly seeking to unpack and certainly to understand the language of Scripture, what I think more than anything is that we come to recognize that within orthodoxy there is somewhat of a spectrum. In that, I think that when you look at the word-for-word -word approaches, I can sit at a table with them. We can converse. We can eat at the table together. I can sit with a dynamic approach, people, because we recognize both of those approaches are still trying to recognize and maintain the divine inspiration of that text. It's only when we veer off to the side to where we start to view text no longer as inspired but as human, purely human, that's when we run into problems. And so, well, oh, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Anyway, I won't go too much down there. <laughs> well, we'll get to somewhat of an answer. So, okay, so enough about inspiration. We're going to move on to our next subject matter. And we're going to talk about the nature of special revelation, in particular the doctrine of inerrancy. And this is where we're going to have to really put our thinking caps on here for a second. Because I think inerrancy has somewhat been run through the mud for various reasons. And so I think it's, it's really important and proper to readily place ourselves in the correct historical context. And we really have to understand the journey that inerrancy has gone through. So remember the enlightenment that I brought up, this event in human history, in particular Western history, that was really initiated by the scientific revolution. And during the scientific revolution, people started to develop something called the scientific method. It's where you start to create a hypothesis and you perform a series of experiments that either prove or disprove the hypothesis. And then if you're wrong, you recreate a new hypothesis and do new experiments. And through that, you come to some understanding of the physical world and of truth. Scientists were able to discover wonders. A lot of the technological advances that we have today come from the scientific revolution and come from the enlightenment. So don't, don't mishear me when I'm trying to sit here and say it's all bad. It's not. There was good things that came about from it. But there is a natural consequence to this. Because when scientists start to create these methods that enables them, or at least they think enables them, to be able to discover capital T truth, what they start to do is they start to look at other disciplines like history. 
Maybe if we take a certain methodology or certain approach to history, then we can recognize truth. And so they start to apply that. Now I know where this is going, because now if we can do that with history, if we can do it with science, why can't we do that with the Bible? Why can't we start to look at the text and to evaluate it and criticize it in the same way that we do with science and the same way that we do with history? It's no longer a sacred text. It's just another text. This was further um, elevated by the fact that especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, we discovered how to translate a lot of ancient Near Eastern texts. We discovered how to translate Akkadian tablets. Akkadian is the language of the Babylonians. We discovered how to read their mythologies. We discovered how to read their legal text. And that opened up a whole world that for about a thousand years we didn't have access to. We also, with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, was able to read hieroglyphics, something we weren't able to do until 1820. In terms of human history, that's relatively recently. So all of a sudden now, we start to read these contexts and read these stories that read very similar to some of the stories that we have in the Old Testament. And it starts to make scholars wondering, scholars like Peter Enns, is this really a unique text? We're going to talk about that. So this created, really in the 19th and 20th centuries, the, the American inerrant tradition. And being in America, I thought it was pertinent to talk about this. But what it really is, is this appeal and this going back to the significance of inerrancy. And so there's been a series of creedal and um, conferences and confessional declarations that have affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture, and in particular, the scientific and historical inerrancy of the text. And when I personally have read those, they are, they are fantastic creeds. They really do help to establish somewhat the boundaries of theology. Something we'll talk about when we get to the Trinity is this idea of theology as grammar, in that it establishes the boundaries of, of our reflection and where we can and cannot go. It's not so much description as it is recognizing the boundaries of our thought. And so that's really what the American inerrant tradition did, is that it was this revitalization, but really a response to the criticisms of the Enlightenment. So what about the criticisms of the Enlightenment? When we think about something like inerrancy, and I would say, okay, the text is inerrant, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that when I apply history and science and my own worldview to the Bible, that it's 100% accurate? What about the biblical authors? If you guys took a hermeneutics course with Travis, you understand the extreme significance of recognizing the text in its original audience. You also recognize that there are multiple genres that are written within the Bible. These are things that we have to evaluate and understand. Things like the ancient Near Eastern context of the Old Testament. The New Testament becomes a little bit more complicated because it's, there's actually three cultural contexts that are really coming at the forefront. There's the combination of the Greco-Roman context, and so, of course, when Alexander the Great, um, he conquered all of that ancient world, including, including Israel, his goal was to basically make the rest of the known world Greek. And so the Greek language became a very significant language in the empire. It was one of the reasons why the Greek Septuagint, um, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, first came about in the first place, was because of this whole making everything Greek. So that's somewhat the context of the New Testament, is this Greek context. But you also have this Roman context that's at the forefront as well. The fact that Rome has conquered Israel, and therefore Israel is a part of the Roman Empire. 
the event of Jesus, the event of the incarnation, the historical reality of Jesus occurred in that context. So that means there's some cultural norms, some paradigms, some things that they experience that we don't necessarily experience the same way today. But you also have this third context, something called Second Temple Judaism. And Second Temple Judaism is really the, the system of Judaism that happened post-exile, but it marks the period in between the Old and the New Testament, sometimes referred to as the intertestamental period. And during this time, you have a series of texts, a series of documents that are being written, but you have the certain unique developments in, in and among the Jewish people. You have the development of the synagogue, this place where they don't necessarily go to the temple, always sacrifice, but they come together and they read the scriptures together in this moment. The synagogue became a vital development to the life of Israel and of the Jewish faith post the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when they couldn't sacrifice. But you also have this development of religious systems in Jerusalem. Um, you have this development of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two different scholarly groups who are interpreting the law in different ways, and they're challenging one another, much like theologians today do with different things. That's the context that Christ was born into. So when we read the New Testament, we recognize, and the complexity of the text forces us to recognize our distance from it. Does that mean that sometimes how we interpret or the categories are scientific and historical categories that naturally, just as a consequence of the world we live in, are built upon the Enlightenment, are those categories always appropriate, appropriate to put onto the text? Let's do a little bit of an exercise here to kind of talk a little bit where this comes down. I want to take a look at the genealogy of Matthew here. Now, a lot of us probably when we were growing up, we had the school activity of creating a genealogy for our classes. And in that project, part of a good genealogy is that you don't miss anybody, right? You have correct dates and you have correct people in there. And in particular, you have continuity. That's the most significant thing here. Now, what I want to point out is in verse 17. This is the genealogy that Matthew gives of Jesus. And I have here in bold some, some particulars, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. But what I want to focus on is on verse 17, where he writes, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. That is very serendipitous that that occurred that way. Now, biblical scholars point this out all the time, so what I'm about to say here is no real shock to anybody. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read Chronicles and the genealogies provided there, there's a lot more names listed than 14 in each section. Which, of course, to some biblical scholars, Matthew made a mistake. He didn't have all the names. He left some out. This genealogy can't be accurate. Not so fast. Wait a second here. Actually, if you look at genealogies, not only in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, in the ancient context, genealogies weren't always about chronology in the sense of these connections. Sometimes the connections could go multiple generations before they connect there. Genealogies tend to be a less about these details and more about the theological connections that they're trying to bring out here. This impacts how sometimes when we read some of these genealogies, we tend to take this in a certain fashion, 
but from an ancient worldview, there isn't a mistake done here. This is in line with how they did their genealogies in the ancient world. It's only when we posit a certain scientific or historical category on the text that all of a sudden we come into a problem. And what I want to espouse here is the problem is not with the text, it's with us and our interpretation of the text, echoing somewhat a little bit of Peter Enns here. But I want to point out something else here. Sometimes the abnormality of details points to a deeper story. And the abnormality of details in this one is the reference to the women in the passage here. Because there's only five of them. And in particular, only Mary, the reason why she seems to be put in there is because of Joseph. They have to put something with Joseph because Mary actually, between the two of them, somewhat in the text bears more significance than Joseph does. That's not to say that Joseph is not significant. Don't hear me say that. But in this, the connection with Mary here is to kind of create a backdrop to who Joseph is. But these four women here are unique. And when you read them, you see Tamar, you see Rahab, you see R Ruth, and you have the wife of Uriah with his Bathsheba. If we know our biblical history and we've read our Old Testament, we know the one thing that connects all these women together. None of them are Israelites. And that's the point that Matthew's trying to drive here. Tamar is not an Israelite, and yet she's in the lineage of Christ. Rahab was at Jericho. She's not an Israelite. Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. Does she convert? Absolutely. She has this whole experience with her mother-in-law where she says, your God is now my God, your people is now my people. She converted. That's what occurs there in that sequence. She's becoming an Israelite. But nevertheless, she's a Moabite. And of course, Uriah here with Bathsheba, I think one of the reasons why Matthew doesn't state her name, but rather states who she was previously married to, because if you read that text and you go back there, Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite. I think there's a reasonable argument to be had that Bathsheba was probably a Hittite. So when you look at this, it's these details that ought to stand out at the forefront of us. And yet what we often do is we look at this and we go, Matthew's genealogy doesn't conform to how we think it ought to conform to. I think the real question of inerrancy, I think something that we have to be careful to of constantly is to allow scripture to, and its own claims to speak about itself to us. It's a world and it's a text that challenges our world and our worldviews, not the other way around. And oftentimes what we do is we start with ourselves and we go back to the text. And then we f we're surprised when we're frustrated that the text doesn't conform to our own ideas and our categories. Also, we really shouldn't be surprised at the fact that God communicates to his audience via imagery and concepts that they readily understood. And that's something that's really important, something I think Peter Enns misses. Because for him, if God is utilizing imagery that is similar to those around the Israelites, then it really doesn't mean that the Bible's unique. But my pushback on that and my argument against that is this. God is utilizing the imagery that he knows his audience is going to understand. I recently on the um, website published a couple articles on the Exodus account. One of the things I, I enjoyed and particularly evaluated was the Egyptian aspects of the text. Because when we tend to look at the Exodus, we tend to look at it simply through the lens of as Jewish and as Christians and not as 
to the, another audience there, which are the Egyptians. And there's certain imagery and things within the text that directly attack the Egyptians' worldview. And scholars all the time look at that and go, see, the Bible's just really ripping off the Egyptians. But it's never a face value parallel ripoff. There's always a reversal. Something goes on within the text in which God reverses the imagery in some form or fashion. I think a lot of times we miss that. So that's one of the complexities and conflicts of the question of historical and scientific inerrancy. How do we look at the text? Do we evaluate it through our own lens or do we actually allow the Bible to speak and to provide its claims to us? The last one, I'm not gonna spend a huge amount of time on this, is textual inerrancy. And this is really another consequence of the Enlightenment, was this development of textual criticism. And textual criticism is the science for understanding and recomposing or reevaluating the transmission of the biblical text. And in particular, this comes out in the forefront with the New Testament. The, the, somewhat of the irony to me of textual criticism, and I've done a lot of reading of Bart Ehrman because he's um, somebody more in my field of things in terms of patristics in the early church, and he's a scholar up in UNC who commonly, um, he's a textual critic, he, he is a scholar, brilliant man, I will say that, but nevertheless, no matter how much he tries to go back to textual criticism and point out these variants and go through these different things. The more that we actually study scripture, the more that we study the manuscripts, which by the way, there's over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Wow. And now, granted, not all those are the full complete documents. Some of them are just simply a line in a sentence. But when you think of actually in terms of the history, in terms of the text that we have, there are other texts that we read all the time in schools, things like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Plato's, philosophical treatises that only have a fraction of that number. I think the, the most recent one for the Iliad is 1800 that they have of it, and yet nobody questions its authenticity. But some, for some reason, we have 5,000. We're constantly questioning the New Testaments. And here's the other important detail about that. The, most, the, the closest Iliad one that we have to Homer when it was written in the 8th century B.C., it's about 300, 400 years removed from when it was written, and it's only just a minor fragment. We have manuscripts from within 100 years of when these texts in the New Testament are written. The more that we've actually studied these various manuscripts and texts and everything, we've evaluated some of the variants within these texts, the more it's actually affirmed the transmission of the text. And we really shouldn't be surprised because a church that is informed by a text, that recognizes the inspiration of a text, you would think that they would protect the text. You would think that they, when they transmitted it, they would take special care and attention. And that's not to say there aren't variants. Sometimes a scribe fell, fell asleep on the job and you know, maybe misheard a vowel here and there. Greek is kind of hard. But nevertheless, of all the variants we have, they all point back to the original text. They all point back to the authenticity and the transmission of it. We can recognize those variants 99.9% .9 of them are minor. I think the only one that might be a major one that's actually kind of quite comical is the Ohani comma in 1 John 5. It's this perfect exposition on the Trinity. And the amazing thing is we actually know where it came about and what, when it happened. It only appears in the King James Version of the Bible because the King James Version was taken from Erasmus's Greek translation in the 1500s. And Erasmus originally didn't have it in his Greek text because when he looked at all the Greek manuscripts, it wasn't there, but the Catholic Church had a problem with that because in the Vulgate it was there. So they went to Erasmus and they said, now you need to put that back. And he said, okay, give me a Greek manuscript that has it and I'll put it back. 
So what did they do? Well, we have the manuscript, so we know exactly what they did. They erased it, and they put it in Greek. But here's the irony of this. Somebody who knows both Latin and Greek, Latin grammar and Greek grammar are not identical. There are differences in how they wrote things. When they transcribed that verse into Greek, it's beautiful Latin grammar, but really bad Greek grammar. It's really hard to cover up things like that. But nevertheless, Erasmus put it in to his next one. We know that variant. It's an obvious one. And yet people all the time still try to espouse the text isn't true. It's not inerrant. Okay, so we're going to move away from this conversation of inerrancy, and now you're going to get my thoughts on things here. And I've had to do a lot of prayer, a lot of reflection on this. And I'm going to have to choose my words somewhat carefully here. The one, the one bad thing about lecturing, the one bad thing about the, being a theologian, there's always a, a fear or always an anxiety that you're going to offend somebody, but I guess it's an occupational hazard. The first thing I want to point out here, and I've already kind of talked about this, is the spectrum of orthodoxy. I do think that sometimes we tend to be a little bit in our own, perhaps, pride, in our own knowledge. I think we sometimes to be a a little bit aggressive with what we will term and deem orthodoxy. We throw around the term orthodoxy and heterodoxy around like it's nothing, and, and there really is something there. We need to be careful with how we throw those terms around, because the more we throw it around, and it doesn't, and we don't throw it around in a meaningful way, the less meaning that term really starts to have. And so I do think that when we start to think about things like inspiration, when we think about things of inerrancy, we do need to rec recognize that there is fair questions to be had there, and there's fair disagreement that we can have on these different approaches and still sit at the table. I think that's something that we have to recognize here. The second thing I wanna, I wanna articulate here, and I'm gonna do so through Catherine Sodringer, is I wanna argue somewhat for a, a proper placement of scripture. So I'm gonna read Catherine Sodringer and we're gonna unpack what she says here. She says, Holy Scripture is the impress, the seal of this very pattern the bearer of this triune holiness, the Bible cannot be the direct univocal expression of such majesty, this living mystery of the universal and the concrete. Nothing creaturely, even the strongly unique creature that is scripture, can be utterly beyond form and genus and kind. And even if it is graciously to echo these, scripture is the creature created by the triune God who elects to make present this unimaginable goodness, this triune pattern. He wishes to be present as the transcendent in this fashion and mode. This is the Bible and all that we intend by saying that the Bible has God as a source. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> Let's unpack this for a second. Please hear me, please hear me, please hear me. I think as a church we have to maintain in the very strongest sense, and I want you to go back to that opening section when I talked about the God who speaks to us and the God who speaks for us. We must recognize and we must maintain and uphold the fact that God does speak through to us through Scripture. That what we have in Scripture is a true, capital T, revelation of God. That we can know God through Scripture. I don't want to minimize that in any way whatsoever. We must maintain that in the strongest sense of that word. But here's what I want to offer here. God reveals himself in Scripture but God is not just primarily a revealer. He's the God who is. He's the God who exists. 
I put up here my kind of my own quote, the proper placement of the doctrine of Scripture is recognizing Scripture as the medium of God's self-revelation, is recognizing the God who is greater than but not other than the medium of Scripture. The reason why Catherine Sodringer uses this phrase of creatureliness is because God has chosen to speak about himself in the written text. But God existed long before there ever was a written text of himself. The text is what we have of words. It's human authors who are wrestling through concepts. It's a God who is revealing himself not only to us, but to Israel, to the church, in real historical events that are transcribed onto the text. But how often in our theologies and in the way that we even think about God do we place scripture onto this area, into this realm that really was only intended for the divine, that was really only intended for God? Let me give you an example here for a second. In the main textbook for this course, which by the way is a fantastic textbook. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying don't read the textbook. I think it's a, church, it's a theology for the church. Fantastic, amazing scholars in it. So don't at all take this as saying this is not a good text. But I want to point out one thing that we have a tendency here when we talk about the proper placement of theology and our theologizing. The section on Revelation, which is the first section of the book, is three chapters. It is over 150 pages on unpacking this idea of the God who reveals himself. And in particular, the, the, the special revelation and the natural revelation aspects, this theological epistemology that we started off with. 150 pages. That same book spends less than 100 talking about the doctrine of God. Now again, I'm not, I'm not pushing back on these theologians. Albert Moeller, Russell Moore, all of them are men that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And they wrote so many things in that text in preparation for this lecture that I read, and I really appreciated it. But I think what we devote our time to really reflects where our theological focus is. And I think sometimes in the evangelical church, possibly as a consequence of those pushbacks of the Enlightenment, we've come to put our theology of Scripture, our theology of how we even know about God on this pedestal. And we put it up here in this place that really, rather than allowing scripture to flow from our doctrine of God, we allow our doctrine of God to flow from scripture. So what I would just wanna kind of challenge you all, and I want you to think through this, is how we place our theologies. What doctrines do we give weight to? What doctrines do we devote the majority of our time to? Because I think if we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about God's sovereignty and man's free will, but not talking about the Trinity, we missed it. I think if we spend an inordinate amount of time debating certain aspects of what's going on in the Lord's Supper and baptism, and those are important things. I'm a theologian. I love to talk about those things and debate those things. But nevertheless, if we don't understand what it means for the God to be who is one, we missed it. And this is one of these aspects here that I want to offer and say, I think we need to have somewhat of a reevaluation. That's what Catherine Sodringer is suggesting here, is a reevaluation about where we place scripture in our doctrines. Okay, I'm done preaching on that. I'm gonna to try to run through this as quickly as possible, because I know you guys are probably all ready to get out here as quickly as possible. So we're gonna talk about canonicity, and this is actually more my cup of tea, because it deals with the realm of patristics. If I then state one topic that I get asked so many questions about, it's about where did the canon um, come about? And so uh, what I'm going to do is quickly just kind of evaluate. I think I'm going to skip this one 
here because I know that we're out of time and I apologize. So you know we're going to skip the community and we're going to jump here to the historical determined one because I think that's one that's commonly misused and appropriated here. Canonicity as being something historically determined, what that means is that scholars try to look at a specific person or event or something in time and try to determine when the text, when the, text the canon of scripture actually came about. And by the way, canon simply is being used here for the number of books, the collection of books that make up the Bible. That's how canon's being used here. Some of these uh, different events that are proposed are Athanasius's canon. Athanasius in a letter uh, created a list of the New Testament canon, and so sometimes scholars such as Bart Ehrman will point out and say this is when canon came about. Problem with that is that there's no historical evidence to suggest the church ever actually made a determination of canon based off of Athanasius's canon. It's a nice thought, but there's just no evidence to support it. What about the Council of Rome? Council of Rome was a regional council in Rome in 382 where they espoused a series of canonical lists. But again, there is no historical evidence to support or prove that this was actually the event of the canon. What about the Vulgate? After following the Council of Rome, Jerome was, um, uh, the church said, Jerome, we want you to create this Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Bible. And so he compiled this text there and he said, okay, this a lot of times scholars will look at it and they'll say the development of the Vulgate and the establishment of the Vulgate is actually when the church confirmed the Vulgate. Problem is, again, there's no evidence for that. And as Christians, and especially as Protestants, who do not recognize the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is in the Vulgate. So that becomes a potential question that we have to face here. The last one is the Council of Trent here, and this is something really important. When was there an ecumenical, that is a worldwide bishops coming together making a declaration on canon? When did that actually occur? Well, the only and the first one that we can recognize is really the Council of Trent in 1545, and it went on for a number of years, which presents a real problem here. Are we really going to argue that canon didn't exist for 1,500 years? That becomes a problem because obviously there was a canon. <laughs> the church functioned and operated as a canon. And the main reason why the Council of Trent even came about is because some of the attacks that Protestants were making against certain passages of the text, in particular the Apocrypha. So the church felt the need, in terms of the Roman Catholic Church, felt the need to make an official ecumenical statement about that. How should we really probably understand canon? Well, rather than looking at a historical event, I'm going to argue here that really we need to be look at, looking at can canonicity as the self-authenticating text. And what does that mean? Well, it's the same thing I've been trying to espouse this whole time here, that we really should be allowing the Bible to make its own claims to us about what it is, not the other way around. And I think if we really believe that Scripture is a foundation for a knowledge of God, then we have to recognize that anything else that we try to defend or approve that text becomes a subordinate defense of that text. It no longer is the grounding of our belief and our faith. Something else has usurped that. The first thing is obviously, and I opened up here with some of those passages, that the canon claims to be the word of God. You see this in 2 Timothy 3. You see it in 1 Peter, and you see it at the end of Revelation. This claim of itself being the word of God. There comes this other question of how do we then recognize the canon? And I'm going to be dependent here on a, on a scholar, Michael Kruger, if you're really interested in going deeper into this conversation, he wrote a fantastic book called Canon Revisited, where he kind of lays out in excruciating depth about what I'm going to be talking about here. But he presents three major criterion 
for recognizing the canon. The first one is providential exposure, and he goes back to 1 Corinthians 5.9, which if anybody's read that, Paul's referencing a letter that we don't have. He references a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have there. Sometimes some people will argue that 2 Corinthians is actually two distinct letters of Paul, but at the end of the day, we really don't know. So there's a letter of Paul's that was written that we don't have, and so on some level, by providence, it was deemed that we weren't supposed to have it. The other thing about this is something called the Nag Hammadi Library, and it was a series of codexes that were discovered in Egypt, and it's the primary codex of the Gnostic text of of Christianity, ones that Bart Ehrman and Elaine Pagels love to bring up all the time. And in this one, there's a series of gospel accounts like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's some really fascinating creation accounts about 300 and something deities creating the world, all these really peculiar things that really reflect more of the Greco-Roman culture than actually the Bible. But what's interesting is that Elaine Pagels is one in particular who argues that the Gospel of Thomas needs to be included within the canon. Now here's the thing. If the church is unaware of a text, that is the fact that it's not widespread, it's not widely dispersed, then how can it reject a text? It can't. All the Gnostic texts that we have ultimately come from one region of the ancient world, and that's from Egypt. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It wasn't widely dispersed. The church couldn't reject something that apparently the church didn't even widely spread. But for all of the New Testament passages, not only on text, not only are they widely spread, but they're widely translated in multiple languages. And that's something that really shows and bears witness to the fact that these are texts that are supposed to be in the canon. The other aspect is the attributes of canonicity, divine qualities such as corporate reception and apostolic origins. These are things where these are texts of the apostles. These are texts that are written in a very specific time period. It would be erroneous for us to accept a text or a letter written by the Apostle Travis today and bring it into the canon. We can't do that because it doesn't go back to those apostolic origins. The other thing is the intertestamental or the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's something I really want to point out here and all throughout the canon, and in particular the New Testament canon. You see this reference to the Holy Spirit as guiding the process. There's this aspect of the fact that as the text that is divinely inspired, it speaks to its own authenticity and its own guidance by the Holy Spirit. The last thing I want to state here is canon as covenantal testament. Why do we even have a New Testament? That's a question that sometimes scholars will ask. Why do we even have a New Testament? Well, if you think about it, the Old Testament is really this idea and understanding of God's covenant in Israel being carried out and manifested. At the Last Supper, When Christ is with his disciples and he's breaking the bread and and the wine, he makes a statement, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you as a covenant. What's going on in the New Testament is there's this new covenant aspect that's certainly dependent and connected to the old, but nevertheless, it is something new. Just as the Lamb in Revelation says, behold, I'm making all things new, there is something new that's going on in the New Testament there. With the Old Testament, we have that because there was an Old Covenant. With the New Testament, we have these texts because of the New Covenant. And so that's the the importance and significance of that. So you all have been troopers. 
I really do appreciate this time, um, and uh, I promise the next one I won't be quite as verbose with it. Um, but um, hopefully that was very helpful. I'll stick around for any questions that you all may have, and uh, you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.